prophet Amos. This is what God showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, See, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel, and the land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos, uh, Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into the land of exile away from this land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O oh, seer, go flee away to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there. Prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. And then Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet, nor prophet's son, but I am a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. And therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be parceled out by line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the word of the Lord. Here's a maybe a little-known fact about me. I, I have this thing about guilt. I mean, I know it should be a healthy response to having done something wrong. If I hurt somebody, I should feel guilty. If I back over your prize begonias or snap at my wife because she forgot to remind me to pay the credit card bill like I specifically asked, feeling guilty afterward, it's an appropriate response. Good social hygiene requires us to feel some guilt for messing up. People who feel no guilt who have no conscience are dangerous, right? Sociopaths, psychopaths, malignant narcissists. We've been living that nightmare for some time now. So feeling guilt is a necessary part of being what we in the profession call technically uh, a grown-up. <laughs> to live together 
in community, we need to take responsibility for our actions, right? And one of the ways that humans are motivated to do this is by feeling guilty when they do something wrong. Okay, so fine. Guilt is a useful part of living with other human beings, but I gotta be honest with you, I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. I don't like feeling guilty. I'm also uh, a type two diabetic. Both my parents and one grandparent, diabetics. The nutritionist told me that for me, it wasn't really a question of if, uh, but when I would get diabetes. Anyway, living with diabetes has introduced an entirely new category of things about which to feel guilty. So, yay me. Knowing you're digging your own grave with your mouth presents a new and urgent sense of guilt, right? One of the ways that this profound new gastronomic shame has manifested in my life is this looming sense of dread I have of going to the doctor now. Which, I, you know, all right, fine. It, it feels a little extra to me, too. I mean, my doctor's great, super supportive, doesn't berate me, doesn't try to make me feel guilty. All he does is sort of read the lab work and make recommendations about how we're going to move forward in this new war against my obstreperous pancreas. So my doctor doesn't try to make me feel guilty. In fact, he takes great pains not to make me feel guilty. But you see, he, he represents a, a, a reality check, a sort of holding up a mirror that displays my health, a, a, a mirror that, when I look into it, often produces guilt, right? And I don't like it. I, I just don't. In my experience, most people don't like to feel guilty, right? Which means there's a second thing most people don't like, feeling judged, right? Interestingly, one of the places people avoid most assiduously for fear of being judged, <laughs> church. No, well, I get it. I mean, I was a preacher's kid, right? I mean, I tended my own share of tent revivals where the preacher leaned into the whole you're going to hell unless you repent thing. I remember feeling like, completely lost. I'd been taught that Jesus loves me, this I know. I mean, I love church. I, I, I loved God. Heck, the parsonage that we lived in contained my dad's student church in the basement. I mean, we literally lived over the church. I was around that stuff all the time. But I wasn't scared at all until it came to those hell, fire, and damnation dopes who, who really messed with my head by making me feel judged and guilty all the time. Now, of course, at the tender age of seven, I'm not sure what I was supposed to have done that would make God torture me forever. But the revival guys, it was always guys, but they were insistent that I was on the express train to perdition if I didn't get my spiritual act together. So I, I grew up knowing whatever else I might be or do, I wasn't going to try to get people to love God by making them feel guilty about it. 
I mean, I, I always responded better to a loving God, a, a doting parent, right? A merciful teacher. I figured that was the God I was interested in talking about, not that other one. Interestingly enough, this pastoral and homiletical stance on judgment and grace wasn't universally embraced in every church I've served. In a couple of churches early on, after I'd preach a sermon about how much God loves us, I'd invariably get people who'd meet me at the back door and say something like, well, that was, that was real nice, Brother Derek, but um, I don't really feel like I've been to church unless somebody stepped on my toes just a little bit. Now, that, I was kind of nonplussed by that, right? The, 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 but that whole judgmental God thing didn't make much sense to me. But after the Rodney King verdict and the Los Angeles riots that ensued, I figured maybe in some naive place in my head that I'd get on people's good side by condemning the kind of institutional racism that caused black men to be beaten half to death on videotape. I mean, I went all Old Testament prophet talking about the injustice of racism and how God expects more of God's children than this kind of violent disregard of human dignity. It was kind of scary, frankly. Well, it turns out uh, some people didn't actually mean that whole stepping on our toes things is a good thing, at least when it comes to some issues. Don't swear, don't, 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 don't have sex outside of marriage, don't steal, make sure you do your daily devotions, go to church every Sunday. Now, some people apparently like to feel guilty about that kind of stuff. But they draw the line at being told that God has a problem with us being racist or homophobic or sexist or transphobic or ableist or xenophobic. That, they say, that crosses a line. That's too political. We don't want to feel guilty about that. Nevertheless, the whole God as judge thing has fallen kind of on tough times, hasn't it? I mean, most of us don't particularly care for folks with bullhorns and sandwich boards walking around telling us that we're sinners dangling over the precipice of hell by the thinnest of threads. In my experience, most folks recoil from the image of God as this sort of perpetually frustrated parent wandering around with a magnifying glass looking for things to be disappointed about. So consequently, apart from some fundamentalist preachers, we, we tend to shy away from talking about God's judgment in polite cup company. Right? I mean, it just feels, I don't know, too, too medieval, doesn't it? Too, too judgmental for modern sensibilities, which is why I felt uncomfortable when I was studying for the sermon. I mean, this whole thing is super judgy, isn't it? Amos talking about God sitting in judgment on Israel. I mean, it doesn't strike me as very enlightened modern behavior. Now, of course, I'm not alone in this assessment. In our text for this morning, the priest Amaziah finds Amos' proclamation of an angry God to be every bit as objectionable as we do. He runs straight to the king to tattle. 
Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. Now, what are those words? <coughs> it, the Lord said, I, see, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I'll never pass by them again. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. And so, the court priest, Amaziah, comes back to Amos and says, Look, um, this is not working for us. Why don't you go, flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread down there, and just go prophesy down there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, where it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the temple of the kingdom. Now, interestingly enough, it's not the king's sanctuary, right? Bethel literally means, in Hebrew, the house of God, <laughs> not the house of the king. So when Amos is told all of this, how does he respond? Well, he tells Amaziah that, look, I mean, this whole thing wasn't his idea in the first place. He was just down in the southern kingdom, down in Judah, tending sheep, goats, dressing sycamores, minding his own business, when God came to him, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, look, I got a little job for you up in the northern kingdom. You see, that's the thing about true prophets. They... They don't typically aspire to the job. Nobody with any sense sits around and says, you know what? I think I'm going to be a prophet. I mean, that looks like a pretty great life. You want to know why nobody says that? Now, first of all, being a prophet is, generally speaking, a pretty lousy job. Very few people want to see the prophet coming. I mean, even in bad times, prophets just feel too judgmental. And really, don't we already have enough of that in our lives as it is? It's part of the reason why prophets often wind up dead. Second, the heart of their job is going to powerful people and telling those people stuff that they don't want to hear. That, 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 that God's not pleased with how they're running the show. See, it turns out people in power aren't casually waiting for someone to show up and tell them that they're not doing the right thing. That not only are they doing it wrong, they're the source of injustice in the world. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. Especially those folks who've been told their whole lives what precious flowers they are. That, that, that the world is lucky to have them. See, this passage from Amos is a famous one. A famous image is employed here. It, it's this well-known metaphor, <clears throat> the plumb line. But interestingly, the, the Hebrew word used here is anach which is used only once in the entirety of Hebrew scriptures, and it's right here. So we don't actually know exactly what it means. Some early translations <clears throat> identify it as the mason's trowel. 
I prefer the Jewish study Bible, which uh, translates it pickaxe, which seems to fit with God's anger and the sword God wields in verse 9. I mean, that's quite a picture, isn't it? God strolling into Israel carrying a pickaxe in one hand and a sword in the other, laying waste to the pagan sanctuaries. See, that, that'll make your innards seize up, won't it? And Amaziah knows that that kind of message will only rile the natives. It's too political, it's too divisive, too judgmental, and we don't need that right now. But the thing is, it's not just modern people who have a hard time with God as judge. Amaziah shows us that. Lord knows we still have court priests, false prophets whose job, whose whole reason for existing is to reassure the folks in power that God's just fine with the selfishness and the casual cruelty against the most vulnerable. And so 2,700 years later, the question that we must continually wrestle with is, well, how do we know which prophets speak God's truth and which are saying whatever will keep them close to the folks in charge? Well, here's a thought. Any person who comes along and claims to be speaking for God but seems not to care at all about those whom God singles out for extra protection probably isn't speaking for God. You see, see how that works? I mean, you can expand it, too. Any preacher, for instance, who says that what God cares most about <clears throat> is answering your dreams for a bigger house, a nicer car, a fatter bank account, Probably false prophet. Any Yahoo who tries to convince you that what God's most concerned with are sexual sins, except, you know, when those sexual sins are committed by somebody you think can deliver your partisan policy Christmas wish list, that's a false prophet. Anybody who says God cares more about refusing to bake gay wedding cakes than offering hospitality to those who've been beaten down and systematically cut off from God by well-meaning religious types, false prophet. Any pastor who insists that God wants men to be in charge of making decisions for women and claims that pregnant people don't have a right to decide what they do with their own bodies, Anybody who claims that God is a God of grace only and not a God of anger when it comes to dealing with systems and authorities designed to keep the last last and the first first is a false prophet. I remember when I was in seminary, <clears throat> I took a preaching class one time, and one of, the, uh, one of the black students preached on a text from the prophet Amos. And it came off to me as kind of judgmental. Right? You're not doing this. Moreover, you should have been doing that. As a consequence, God's really mad. And I remember saying something along the lines of, well, I mean, that's fine and all, but where's the grace in that sermon? You know, what, what, what about God's mercy? And all these years later, I, I think I have an idea about where to find grace and mercy in that student's sermon. See, I think it goes without saying that there are people who show up looking for God, 
who don't have the slightest idea of why they're even there, except that they need to hear about a God who holds the hand of the anxious, who bears up those too weak to stand, who loves those who think themselves unlovable, who forgives the unforgivable. So yes, we need to comfort and console the frightened and grieving. We need a God of grace and mercy. But there are also people who need to hear about a God who is furious. Furious with a world in which immigrant families are torn apart. A God whose anger flares when terrified refugees are turned away. A God whose indignation burns hot against those who would co-opt the justice system to persecute and kill black people, use the economic system to persecute and exclude LGBTQ people. I mean, there are all kinds of people who would love to hear about a God who raises an arm against injustice, who will not tolerate bigotry, who refuses to sit by while the work of the laborers is monetized in ways that only benefit the people in charge, who, who, who are desperate for a word from a God who's incensed with a world in which black parents lie awake at night in fear of what might happen to their children on the way home from school. See, if you happen to be one of the people kicked to the curb by the folks in charge, God's outrage may just be what grace sounds like. In the end, for many, God's judgment may be where we find God's mercy. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.